it's worth anybody looking up on the internet the case of Oliver McGowan, who's a young boy. On admission to hospital, Oliver had been given antipsychotic medicines in the past and he'd always reacted badly to them. In fact, at one stage, he'd had a dystonic reaction to his, what's called an ocular gyro crisis, which is an extremely frightening thing. It's not fatal, but it's, it must be horrific. You, your eyes move up in your head and you, you can't move. And that was a reaction to an antipsychotic. And he'd had other antipsychotics, which he said made him feel like there was flies buzzing around in his head. He never had a psychosis. Had what's called an advanced decision. He'd, he'd got a care, care plan that said, please don't give me antipsychotics, which they just put in a drawer. And on, it, on his way into hospital, he'd said in the ambulance, please don't give me antipsychotics. And they said, we'll look after you, we won't do it. This is awful, but a, a, he became ill, he was on the ventilator, his mother came in to see him one day after having said on the ward as well, please don't give me antipsychotics. And also it was written on his um, drug chart in red ink and his parents were totally ignored. But it's another case of the parents suddenly not being listened to. And the doctors, the state in a way, thinking we know better than these parents. He'd been given antipsychotics and he subsequently died. A very rare but fatal adverse reaction to antipsychotics. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the US, killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm podcast host Scott Simpson, and in this episode of Medical Error Interviews, I chat with nurse and medical educator Steve Turner. Steve shares about his experiences witnessing medical error and participating in them, and shares how being a healthcare whistleblower is likely to get you fired from your job and blacklisted from future opportunities. Steve also talks about the needless death of Oliver McGowan, who was killed by multiple healthcare workers failing to listen to what he told them. Steve also shares how the paternalistic physician culture has baked in arrogance, and that, in and of itself, is a medical error. 
You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and other podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to sign up to become a podcast patron. Do you need the support of a counselor for your own experience with medical error or living with a chronic illness or LGBT issues or any of life's challenges? You can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here is my interview with Steve Turner and a note of caution that some people may be triggered by Steve's experience in the healthcare system. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me. Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? I grew up in Stafford in the Midlands in England and I had a happy childhood. I had a, I've got one brother. Um, we moved to Rugby, which is about 60, 80 miles away from Stafford when I was about 17. And I think that worked out well for me because I was getting on really badly at school and it sort of kick-started me into uh, thinking a little bit more about what I was going to do in the future. Okay. Uh, and just one other thing while I'm thinking of it, often we'll slip into acronyms and medical speak. Uh, so we'll have to remember that we have an international audience and that we'll want to um, make sure we unpack whatever those acronyms are. I'll try to remember as well. Me too. The NHS is acronym city. So yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so then you moved to rugby, it was called? Yes, yeah. Okay. Um, and then what did you do after that? Well, it, I did A-levels. That's the exams you do when you're 18 in, in this country, the ones they did do. And then I actually didn't know what I wanted to do. In the back of my mind, because I think partly because my friend's father was a psychiatrist and I knew my granddad had been in psychiatric hospital. I, I probably wanted to go into mental health, but I didn't really feel ready for it. So I worked in a restaurant in Coventry for a couple of years and I met some Australians working there. And this is the 70s in Britain. It was a quite a funny era. And uh, they were really nice people, got on really well with them. So when they went back to Australia, I said, hang on a minute. And I, I went to live in Australia. Yeah, I went on a working holiday visa, so I travelled across from Perth and I ended up in a place called Shepparton in central Victoria. So I didn't have the Australian city experience. I lived in the country. And it was really, it was good. Okay. I did casual work, working in bars, work, fruit picking, things like that. At, at that time, Australia was booming and this country was really... It was, it, I left in what was called the winter of discontent, I think, or just before it, where things were, the economy was really bad. And I, I just, I just loved it. I just, uh, the whole experience is probably something I draw on more than any of the training courses and qualifications I've got. He's working for 10 years, traveling around, mainly in Australia, but I travel around a bit more as well. Okay, so tell me how you draw upon those experiences in your current work. Well, I think 
when you're traveling around you're you're sort of on your own a lot of the time you've got to have your wits about you you've got to those were the days when you could sort of if you didn't mind what you did for a living you could just turn up somewhere and say have you got a job and the chances are that, that they did have a job um manual work or casual work or catering but i didn't mind um you meet a real variety of people and and it, I suppose something that did occur to me later is when I went, became a mental health nurse and started to work with people with various mental health difficulties, I'd come across it before because I'd mixed with so many different people in different areas. Mm. So you could recognize symptoms based on your past experience. Yeah. I think, oh, that's why that was difficult for that person. Or that's why, obviously, at the time, I... But it doesn't help to it doesn't help to label things anyway. But at the time, I didn't even know what the label was. <laughs> so, what prompted you to move from low skill level employment into back into academics? Um, I thought I've always thought I wanted to do nursing, and I suppose after after spending time in Australia and and sort of traveling around and working I, I thought maybe I should do something a little bit constructive I started to, to realize I was going to get older and you couldn't do this forever and I wanted to do nursing and I got in at St George's in London I applied to Australia and the UK and I was really pleased I, I sort of fancied the idea of coming back to live in London and it was really good to get into St George's I didn't think I would so I, I did general nursing followed by mental health nursing Okay. That by this time I'm in my twenties, at twenty-eight or so. So it's not the way people normally do it. I mean, nowadays people go straight to university. Yeah, that is. I, that didn't, I didn't go to university until I was in my thirties. I did everything the other way around. Yeah. And then why did you decide to specialize in the mental health aspect of nursing? Um, I think it was always it was always the area, area I wanted to go in, but I chose to do general nursing first, I think to ease myself into it a bit. I was a little bit wary of mental health nursing, a little bit, I didn't quite know what to expect, although it's what I wanted to do. So, yeah, it interested me and it was, it was something that I'd drawn to partly because of, was drawn to partly because of family experience, because my grandfather was in a mental hospital all his life. Uh, in fact, he died there. And it wasn't a scary place to me in that way because one would say, oh, that's where your granddad was. And I remember meeting him once. He died when I was about six. I remember, I actually remember, I remember he had two dogs. And it turns out, I, I asked my mum recently, where did the dogs come from? Because he was in the hospital. They were the psychiatrist's dogs. They used to, he used to take them out for a walk. Oh, uh, so therapy. I, Yes, yeah, and I think in in general nursing, you cannot separate mental and physical health, and that's what interested me more. If you're going to look after something, you've got to look after the whole person. Right. Yeah. So I'm glad I did both. So, what contrast, if any, was there between your expectations and sort of visions of what being a mental health nurse would be like? and then those first few years of actually being a mental health nurse? Hmm. Um, I don't think, by the time I came to do it, I knew what I was letting myself in for, if you know what I mean, because I'd done general nursing, I'd done a bit of research into it. So 
what I do remember is the environment's different to what it is today. I worked on a large acute ward with 40 beds, dormitories. It wasn't, it wasn't a kind environment, but the people I worked with were good. I think one thing I did notice as well is I, got, I was in, always interested in community mental health. And when I first started mental health nursing, there were maybe a couple of community teams, but that was a, right, a really unusual thing to do. And it's only when I came back to nursing in 2002 to mental health nursing that I realized how much the community had changed. Mm. So uh, I think I read that you moved to the United States at some point? No, what happened, not quite, no. I, I after I'd been nursing for a couple of years, I, I got a chance to work for, a, it was a company called SMS, a, a shared medical systems. It's not around though, it got taken over. But it was an American company, had a lot of IT systems in this country. And I applied for a job there. I thought, I'll do this for six months. This will be interesting. And I stayed there for 10 years working on clinical systems. So I eventually became one of their senior consultants. So we were technically based in Philadelphia, but I worked in the UK. We just okay. went over there occasionally. And so that was IT, That's, that was not nursing? It wasn't nursing, but I worked on clinical systems. And so I would spend a lot of time on the wards. I'd spend a lot of time with doctors. If you were implementing a system in a hospital, if you're not actually there in the environment, you, the chances of it really being successful are a bit limited. You've got to see how it works in practice and make sure it's sort of appropriate. So I, I also specialised when clinical governance came in in this country, in England, I did a lot of work around clinical governance. So I was sort of helping show the clinical credibility of the system, which I liked it. I did stay a lot longer than I thought I would there, but uh, yeah. So because uh, the podcast is about medical errors, uh, thinking back to when you started training as a, as a nurse and then practicing as a nurse and also transferring into the IT role, uh, share some of the medical error um, experiences that you had or witnessed. When I first started nursing, there's quite a conscious contract. I mean, the medical error is a big focus now and it's something I tweet about and talk about a lot things were different. This I'm coming back to the 1980s now. Um, I mean, I know we've got a lot to do now, but there were some quite shocking things going on. There were, for example, I worked on a ward where one consultant would not tell his patients that they had cancer if they had cancer. I mean, that just wouldn't be able to be done now. I've seen medical errors happen in the hospital. I've seen doctors say that doctor was totally responsible for it, but nothing came of it. So there was no structure around how to deal with it. And hospital doctors and nurses sort of were a law unto themselves. There's been a recent case in the UK where a doctor didn't tell a patient about their cancer diagnosis. And that's really hit the headlines here. And it was a terrible thing. That's awful. That family didn't have time to prepare for it. It's the, somebody's right to know. Unbelievable. And I suppose because of my age, I thought back and I thought, oh, you know, that was commonplace at the time. Mm -hmm. What was the thinking behind that? 
arrogance, I would say, to be quite honest. I mean, the, the thinking was, the consultant thinking, this patient is better off not knowing they'll have a better end of life because they won't be worried about dying, I would say. An arrogant way of thinking because the reality was, and I didn't find this out till a bit later when I worked on one of the wards, I knew that most of the patients who were dying of cancer who deliberately hadn't been told had asked one of the nurses, sometimes it was me, and we had the discussion with them behind the doc, behind everybody else's back. But uh, I, I, I suppose the, the kindest way I can describe it is, is paternalism. I'm the doctor, you're the patient, I know what's best for you. Yeah. That was very common. And unfortunately, it still is. Yeah, yeah, it, it seems to be part of the culture. Uh, so you were in the IT role for uh, a decade or so, and then you said you returned yeah. to nursing in 2002? Yeah, I came back and I worked in the community mental health team. I actually did a return to practice nursing course, which I'd thoroughly recommend. Technically, I don't think I needed to do it because I was never unregistered as a nurse because I was doing clinical type work, but it was really good. I went to work for a local community mental health team and I ended up working for an assertive outreach team, which is a mental health team that deals with people who, these are people who are labeled as um, hard to engage, but it's actually the services that are hard to engage, <laughs> not, not the people. It's, uh, I loved it. So we were working with people on the margins of society where traditional methods and medicines and things like that just hadn't worked. It was quite good because we sort of had free reign to try whatever approach we could. We had smaller caseloads to spend more time with people. I saw some absolutely amazing recoveries or survivals from mental illness of people who people who other services had written off. Well, well, they passed them on to assertive outreach, and you know they'll think nothing's worked for this person. So if, if you folks had a little more free reign in your ability to try different approaches with uh, your clients, what did you find that did work? Um, I suppose a good example was, um, was people who, had, who took street drugs. I mean, the traditional approach would probably be, um, I mean, a lot of clinicians are much more reason about this. I mean, if people, if you're going to take, if you're going to smoke dope or take street drugs, you're going to do it. And if a nurse or a doctor tells you not to do it, that's going to have no effect whatsoever. So where we were working with people who we thought that was actually making them worse, we could work on a plan to balance what street drugs they take, talk with any other drugs they might take. So we just involved it, included it in the plan rather than telling people you can't do it or implying you can't do it. Um, also, other sorts of things, we try and find out what worked for people. So you've got, there's a horrible phrase in mental health, which I hope isn't used now, but it is, is you know, all that person, we need to get some meds into them, basically sedate them. We saw a lot of people where that had been the approach to them. And, they would come out of hospital and then not take their medicine. And actually, the medicines in a lot of cases, um, I'm not anti, anti, I'm not against antipsychotics if they work and it's the person's choice. But sometimes it just made people look like they was better to the, they were better to, to the clinicians. They actually felt terrible. Um, you know, it was making them, it was ruining their lives. The, the drugs were making them feel not their real self. So we would be able, we would have the time to say, well, what would help? 
if we're going to see you once a week, because we we because we were an assertive outreach team, people soon got the hang of the fact that we weren't going to drop them, even if they didn't want to see us. I I've spent three months trying to get into somebody's house just talking to this person through the letterbox before I got here, and we ended up building the this person really took ownership of their own care and it made a great steps forward. But uh, yeah, it, it, and what we would work on what worked. So we'd go to concerts with people. If they liked that, we would, you know, some quite good live music round in this area. And if that's what people liked. And people would say, well, you're just treating me like a person. This is, I actually, somebody once said to me after, after a, Bit of a rocky relationship because I'm the nurse who they have to see and like they reluctantly go along with it. But they're in a while. This person said, "Well, actually, that was quite useful. I did quite like that. You, I felt like you saw me as an ordinary person, and that, that was the best compliment I've ever had, really." Um, so it's that sort of looking at alternatives. Yeah. So I, I sort of struck strikes me that there's sort of two. Uh, medical errors in what you just spoke about. There's that whole general approach of, well, we'll just give them information and tell them drugs are bad and that'll help them stop drugs as if information caused transformation. Mm. And then this whole drugging to sedate and call that treatment when it's really just a convenience for the, the healthcare worker uh, is another medical error and I'm using that term broadly and as opposed to more like medical harm intentional but there are types of medical error and they can lead to harm I I yeah I say they are for this is sort of thin end of the wedge and it, there's quite a lot of research about antipsychotics and how they actually make people look like they're better but they're not doing anything for people there's loads on that and uh, and also Arrogance is a medical error, I would say. This, and I'm not talking about doctors, just doctors here, I'm talking about nurses, everybody, support workers, everybody, because when it comes to mental health, you, the person you work with is highly influential, so it might, in this country, in England in particular, it might not be a psychiatrist, it could be a support worker. They've got a highly influential, important role. And so you can, you can sort of persuade people to do things that are wrong for them, and, and you know, you've got to really listen to what people are saying. Yeah, that that's key, listening. I've heard from other folks uh, that in the UK, people can be uh, locked up for mental health reasons pretty much on a doctor's whim. No, that isn't true. No, I would... Uh... I'd have to defend, <laughs> defend the mental, it's not perfect, but the Mental Health Act in this country means if somebody, and I'm talking about England, because it's slightly different in the different countries of Great Britain, but it's pretty much the same. But in England, if you want to put somebody away against their will, somebody has to request a Mental Health Act assessment, and then different people come in and do that assessment. And if they don't assess them as needing, to be held against the will it won't happen so it's not you can't have somebody it's it's common in this country uh, people think oh i can have my i don't know my father put away or something no you can't it doesn't work like that there is a big legal process around it it doesn't always work well and people do get sectioned as it's called sectioned under the mental health act when they shouldn't be but it doesn't happen on a whim 
I certainly have seen people sectioned inappropriately. I, and I've certainly worked with somebody who I felt was sectioned because he was Spanish. You'll have to, I'll tell you the story behind this is somebody who spoke with an English accent but had been brought up in Spain, but had the expressions of a, of a sort of Southern European person. And something happened, got really wound up and got angry and got more and more angry and was also expressing himself in a, in a sort of a, a flamboyant way. And after working with this guy for about six months, I firmly believed that he was sectioned inappropriately and that it was because of the way he expressed himself. Wow. On the other hand, I've worked with people who were really, really ill and really, I've requested a Mental Health Act assessment. I have, as the mental health nurse, I have no say in it then. Somebody has to, else has to assess them. You provide them information. And I've been really worried that they wouldn't end up being admitted to hospital because they were such a risk to themselves. So you say that there's a legal process around this, and this shows my ignorance of the whole UK legal system, but I understand that there's sort of a separate court system, a family court system, where these sorts of things are dealt with? Um, there's a separate system. It's not a family court system. I'm not that familiar with it, but the Mental, the mental Health Act is administered it, it has got its own laws around it so if you if you're in hospital you can immediately you can appeal against your section so there is a legal process that wraps it up it's not the family court system but it's a mental health act process okay you i'm thinking i'm thinking of the cases where a child has a chronic illness and the doctors say that the parent usually the mother is somehow inducing illness into that child and then they separate the child from the mother um, and just traumatize the entire family. That's uh, a thing that I'm beginning to learn more and more about, which is truly shocking. That uh, um, what I'm hearing of is, um, I think they call it FII, fabricated and induced illness or something. That sounds right. Uh, I've also heard it referred to as Munchausen by proxy, yeah. where in cases of, ME or chronic fatigue syndrome in children, when somebody's really ill, and I firmly believe these people are ill, I don't know much about it, but you, you couldn't fake it. You've, these people are really, all of a sudden the blame starts to shift onto the parents. And that does happen a lot. And I do, I do work with people in slightly different situations where the parents have been ignored or particularly mothers have been sort of labelled as difficult. And actually, in the case of, uh, if it's worth anybody looking up on the internet, the case of Oliver McGowan, who's a young boy who died two years ago with learning disability and autism, and his parents were totally ignored. That, that's different to the fabricated induced illness. It was, this was, but it's another case of the parents suddenly not being listened to and the doctors the state in a way thinking we know better than these parents it's a it is a huge issue in this country i'm not familiar with uh, the story about oliver what happened there oliver mcgowan is a he was an 18 year old boy he died two years ago in a hospital in in england he had mild 
learning disability and autism and he had focal seizures so he would occasionally have fits after a seizure he would be a little bit agitated and would need to just be left or given a football or given something he wasn't he was sort of coming around from a seizure he'd had various investigations for the seizures and he'd been in and out of hospital including actually being inappropriately sectioned um, before his last admission he was admitted to hospital having seizures he was put on a ventilator and as i understand it he was ventilated so they could do a brain scan because he was fitting in on admission to hospital oliver had been given antipsychotic medicines in the past and he'd always reacted badly to them in fact at one stage he'd had a dystonic reaction to his what's called an ocular gyro crisis which is an extremely frightening thing it's not fatal but it must be horrific you, your eyes move up in your head and you you can't move and that was a reaction to an antipsychotic and he'd had other antipsychotics which he said made him feel like there was flies buzzing around in his head he never had a psychosis he was given these well we i can't really quite understand why he was prescribed them anyway he wasn't on them at the time he went into hospital and he had he was on a ventilator and he'd had what's called an advanced decision he'd, he'd got a care, care plan that said please don't give me antipsychotics which they just put in a drawer and on it on his way into hospital he'd said in the ambulance please don't give me antipsychotics and they said we'll look after you we won't do it this is awful but a, a, he became ill he was on the ventilator his mother came in to see him one day after having said on the ward as well please don't give me antipsychotics and also it was written on his um drug chart in red ink unfortunately it didn't say exactly what what the problem was but it did say red ink in the allergies column he'd been given antipsychotics and he subsequently died of what's called neuroleptic malignant syndrome which is a a very rare but fatal adverse reaction to antipsychotics now his mother has campaigned paula for training on hospitals on all staff to deal with people with learning disabilities and autism and that training is just about to be rolled out Oliver's campaign is the hashtag for it. it is, I, I actually use it in my teaching now because it's a, it's a terrible example of when people aren't listened to. Yeah, um, um, I, I would call it a medical error. That's not what it's. Yeah. I can't see anything other than it being a medical error. And I've actually got little blogs saying that and everything. But it, it sort yeah. of reminds me of how when a, a plane crashes, it's not usually one bolt that breaks. It's a series of things that goes wrong. Yeah. And here, there are multiple ways in which it should have been stopped uh, for Oliver, the administration of the antipsychotics, but multiple times it did not. No, I mean, in medical terms, there were so many red flags. But the yeah. decision was made that because then the decision was made without, as far as I'm aware from everything I've seen, and I've talked to his mother, without, if, if you make a decision to do something that's what somebody hasn't wanted or they're, they're unconscious, you need to make a best interest decision. And the ideal way of making a best interest decision 
is to take everybody's views into consideration and document it. And I'm not sure there was any, the decision was made, this is so rare, it won't happen to him. And of course it did. Mm -hmm. uh, I also read that you had your own experience with whistleblowing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. that's all I, I read was you had this experience. I don't know any details. Oh, well, oh, it's, it's, this is a, this is a problem. It's not, it's not a problem with the NHS and it's not a problem with healthcare. This is a societal industry-wide problem. I, this is why I left the NHS actually. I raised some concerns around about 2006 that the team that I worked for was, was being changed, disbanded effectively, and that we weren't going to be able to provide such a good service. So I, I wrote a letter using the formal, what they call it, grievance procedure. And this was for your we, assertive uh, team? For the team, representing the team I worked in to say, you know, you need to talk to us about this. We know things have got to change. And if you're short of money, that's fine. And we also know we're not a perfect team. And there were certain things. But I have to say I did it deliberately. I copied the letter to one of the general practitioners that we work with very closely. So I sent a bit of information outside the trust, but this was to something, this was outside the organization. This was to somebody who we worked with very closely. So I thought, really, that's legitimate. So I was suspended, um, basically for telling tales. The assertive outreach team eventually was changed completely and I'm not sure what happened. It may have, maybe just as good, I don't know. But at that point I thought, well, if you try and change things and you write a, a perfectly reasonable letter and, and then you get suspended for doing it and I was off for six weeks, I, I don't really want to work for this organisation. So I went self-employed and I ended up getting employed back by the same people for another, nine, 10, 12, 13, 14, another five years. But the NHS, as the NHS as I say, this is not an NHS problem. I'm a fan of the NHS, but it, there is people who speak out or whistleblow are just ostracized. And eventually I lost all my work when I made some, I made what's called a protected disclosure to the Care Quality Commission about uh, trying to change reports about what was essentially bullying of staff about uh, a job, this is when I was self-employed, a job that I was commissioned on to train nurses on medicines. We, 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 we were commissioned to do some training and then at the end of the training we'd do an exam because we knew that these new nurses didn't know the stuff we were training on about medicines management. And they all of a sudden it was changed and they said we just want you to do the exam, we don't want you to do the training. And I said well I'm, I'm not going to examine these new students, just come out of university, these new nurses, on something that they're all going to fail. So there's a whole list of things like that. Uh, there was an external review of my concerns and I've never had contact with anybody involved in it or heard anything since. Wait a minute, so there was an external review and they didn't interview you? They interviewed me, okay. but I never saw the report, I never had any contact with anybody, the Care Quality Commission, who's the regulator, asked for that report to be done. They never showed it to me. So it's like 
I did find out the report made some recommendations, but I was I was just basically blacklisted. And it went across a number of organisations and, and actually lost me a piece of work all of a sudden. So I had to sort of reinvent myself and start doing different things. Interestingly now, I'm beginning to be asked by some NHS trusts in, in other areas of the country to come and talk about this because they're realising that treating staff like this, not only is it very dangerous for patients, they can't recruit. If an organisation's got a bad name for, you know, you've got to toe the line, you can't ever complain about anything, you mustn't raise concerns, people just vote with their feet. Right. So I never wanted to make a career about a whistleblower, and my line on it is always, I was just trying to do my job properly. Uh, so between when that happened, which is over a decade ago now? Um, it came to a head in 2014, so not. Okay. that's when the report thing happened. So how, if at all, has the environment changed for whistleblowers? It hasn't. Oh. Not really. Um, not in this country. I'm involved with the all, I, I gave evidence to the all party parliamentary group on whistleblowing and I'm involved with an organisation called Whistleblowers UK. It hasn't significantly changed, I don't think. If you raise concerns, I can only talk about healthcare and like I say it's a, it's a bigger issue than that. If you raise concerns in healthcare about patient safety and you raise legitimate concerns, and I should say at this point that not all whistleblowers are genuine. I mean, everybody, we're all people, and it's, it's not us or them. It, but if you raise legitimate concerns about patient safety, you'll probably, if they're uncomfortable for the organisation, you'll probably lose your job. You'll be made to feel really uncomfortable. And it hasn't really changed. But it's, I'd say what has changed is the profile of it is, is much, much higher. And it's maybe reaching a bit of a tipping point now. Hmm. I actually think the tipping point is because of recruitment and retention of staff, because the NHS is so short. It's got so many vacancies. I think I better not give a figure because I don't know it, but there's a really huge number of unfilled vacancies in the health service in England. Wow. What do you attribute that to? I think it was because it's probably part, it's, it's a multiple factors. I wouldn't attribute it all to whistleblowing, but that's a fact. It, it, um, there was a reduction in number of training places. So at one point there wasn't so many people being trained. Brexit has definitely had an effect. The NHS relies on wonderful people from outside the country to come and work here. And not all of them, I mean, people are from all over the world, not just Europe, but a lot of people have gone back. And I think, there was also, there was some reforms in 2012, which were an absolute disaster. That caused a lot of redundancies and a lot of people took early redundancy because they were just fed up with the culture. It's an absolute combination of things. And it's not, I, look at, I looked at something about the health service in a couple of other countries recently. And it's not, we tend to think we're unique here and we're either, we tend to, in English, English people really funny, in my opinion, it, 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 although I'm English, we tend to either think we're really wonderful and nobody's got it as good as us or, or nobody's got it as bad as us, but actually these issues with recruitment and re retention are worldwide. And that prompts me to say it's 
isn't it because the medical culture is the same worldwide that yes. arrogance god complex yes it is it is it's really got to change i firmly believe and this is all my work now i, I just sort of I describe it as a portfolio career, but what it is basically is getting where, where I can get it. But everything I want to do, I firmly believe patients are their own best experts and that us clinical people have got to change. We're not going to have any choice. We can't tell people what to do anymore. We give people advice and we've got to change really some quite fundamental things because there's a lot of work gone on in this country, and worldwide, I think, that we call shared decision-making, where they say a clinician shares the decision with the patient. And I've been thinking about that recently. I've been asked about it. I actually think that's wrong. I don't think it's a shared decision. That's a quite an arrogant way of looking at it. We give patients information. We're not part of that decision. We think we are. Come to a decision, somebody says, Oh, yes, I'll go and do that. But when when we go home or patients go home, we have another thing about it. It's our decision what we do about our health and care. Clinicians are there to educate, direct, and very occasionally when somebody's acutely ill, intervene. But it's the whole thing's changing, and I actually think it's unstoppable. And I think some of the problems is because the nursing and medical profession are sort of reacting a bit badly to this and becoming a little bit defensive. It's a threat to their power. It is. It is about power. I, I, I don't want the power. When I see people, I mean, I'm only just one person who sees a few people and does a few different jobs, but I don't want any power over people because that works for both of us. I get huge drug job satisfaction they get better i get more work i don't want any power over people it's that's that is the problem it sounds like that is freeing in the sense that it doesn't make you responsible for your patient's decision you're responsible for giving them information and a process to help figure out what's good for them but you're not responsible for their decision yeah i think it works both ways i think it is free and i think it will lead to a lot more transparency and if it really is the patient's decision then patients might make a bad decision and it won't reflect on the clinician if you've gone through that process properly whereas i think now some people feel responsible for something that's not and then get defensive so uh, medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death. And I was mentioning to uh, somebody the other day um, that I've read that physicians have a high suicide rate, maybe the highest of all professionals. And I theorized that they probably come into the profession with these ideals of how they're going to help people. And then they soon come up against the system which really constrains them and in many ways is a, has contrasting values to their personal values. And that is what's contributing to the high suicide rate amongst physicians. I think that's probably a factor. It's difficult for me to really, uh, I think workload's a factor as well. And, I think, I think there's multiple factors. It's certainly a high profile thing at the moment. Mm -hmm. there's, there's been some work in this country about uh, looking at um, 
bullying and suicide and there have been a, a, a number of uh, clinical people who've committed suicide where it has been attributed to workplace bullying. Wow. Wow, that's so, frightening. Yes. Uh, so what sort of projects are you involved in now? You've moved into this sort of patient safety track. I have. Um, I, I work, I do a lot of now of, of clinical education work. So I will go out and teach whoever will contract me to do the work because I'm self-employed now. And I do patient safety training. I do teaching with, I try to teach with patients and users of services. So for example, a colleague of mine, Sam and I, we teach uh, students and postgraduate nurses and medical staff sometimes as well on, on mental health. And uh, they could either be mental health students where we're teaching something more detailed about mental health medicines, or there might be, it might be a general introduction to mental health. But what we've developed, and this is happening elsewhere as well, and I really support any projects like this, is that Sam is a, a patient, a user of services, and still is, and I'm, I was actually his nurse <laughs> at one stage, and we teach the session equally. And we both, it's, it's Sam's that makes it. And what really works there is we're both equally valued. We both get paid, we both, this is not just bringing in a patient to talk about they're like wheeling and literally I've been to things in, in teaching hospitals where they literally wheeled in a patient to talk about their illness. This is people can ask us anything. People can ask us about what we thought of the other person when I was the nurse and he was the patient about what went wrong. And I'm, I'm developing that approach more and more. There's not a lot of there, there won't be so many patients who'd be willing to stand up in front of a group of people. It's different for Sam because his background's acting and this really keeps him well. But where, where somebody's got a story, and I've worked with a lot of users of services or patients, I'm trying to avoid using a particular term here because it's it, whatever you want to call yourself if you're in the system, um, have said, this really helped me, other people should know it. So I do quite a lot of talks on using anonymized stories, which are, where I've changed the details, so you wouldn't be able to identify the actual person, but going through the whole story and what helped and the things that helped. And I also have started to look on the patient safety front, because the patient safety thing, I think worldwide, definitely in this country, has become a bit of an industry. And it's become a bit hierarchical and it's really, I really find it quite annoying. And I, I teach on patient safety. I will pick a particular case, which is why I knew about Oliver McGowan and why I was happy to say what I said, because I, I can sort of back it up. And I'll pick some particular cases and go through what happened in terms of, it's, it's usually to do with the death of a patient and, and help the audience in a sort of supportive environment think about, would this ever happen where we are? And if it would, what would we do about it? I also talk about, when I do some of the sessions, I talk about errors that I've made. And that's, that's I think that opens up a good discussion and it's worth doing. Would you so, mind yeah. sharing one of those now? Yeah, I, I the one I, as I say, I sort of anonymize things, so it's, it's this is basically the story, but it's not, you can't pin it down to an individual. I saw somebody once who she was labeled as aggressive. And this is when I worked in mental health. I spoke to somebody on the phone a few times. 
I followed the care plan that said this person had borderline personality disorder, was aggressive, and they hadn't quite written the murder manipulative in the care plan, which is a terrible thing to call anybody, and usually always, always not true, but the, the gist of it was that. And I basically fobbed this person off, I think, and I came across her again a few years later in a different environment. And we had a chance to have a much longer assessment session. And I realized that, that this person's care plan that I'd been following, like I shouldn't have been, was not this person. And it was not the thing to do for her. And it was really, we actually, I managed to get all the stuff about aggression, which was rubbish, just because somebody gets angry. I mean, I've spoken to people on the phone and got angry and, and sounded, it, we all, well, can't say we all do it, but a lot of people do it. it, it this you never touched anybody. If you're if you're ill, and somebody's telling you something that is clearly wrong, you're going to shout at them. Everybody would. So we've got all that changed. We've got the care plan changed. We've got an appointment with the psychiatrist. We've got so the diagnosis changed, and this person is now well. She'll be trained now. Is a psychologist. Oh wow! And so the diagnosis that was changed was it changed to another mental health diagnosis or a physical? I think it was just taken off. Ah. Because it, I have a problem with diagnosis too. In in, I don't know if this is worldwide, but there was a question on Twitter yesterday about what does a working diagnosis mean, and. I think diagnosis can be really, can be helpful, but it can be, in mental health, it can be really unhelpful. A working diagnosis, if you share it the, with the patient, might be useful. I think you've got this, and say, well, what's the treatment for that? Okay, let's see if that works. But it's not always shared with the patient in the way that the patient would remember it. And it's sometimes done because doctors are paid when they see a person, they have to appoint, give them a diagnosis. So it's a tick in the box. Okay. So unbeknownst to that patient, they're getting a mental health diagnosis. Well, they should know it, but I've certainly worked with people, many, many people who've said, oh, I don't know what my diagnosis is. Or worse, I met somebody once and he said, really angry. This is somebody I met in a slightly different context. He said, I've just been told I've got emotionally unstable personality disorder. He said, what the F am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> And I, I agreed with him. I thought, what are you supposed to do with that? What is... Yeah. This person had just come from the consultation. So I know you don't remember everything that somebody's told him. That's all he could remember is if you give this massive label. Yeah. Yeah. It sort of cuts both ways. The labels are helpful when it's a convenient term to explain a, a sort of a cluster of symptoms, mm. but then it's also very isolating and can prevent uh, treatment in other areas. Yes, and they, they go in fads as well. Like when I was working in the early 2000s, the borderline personality disorder was very common and often misunderstood. I mean, they, not if you hadn't even read what that actually means. And I, mean, I mean clinical people, not the patients was the common thing. Now I'm hearing emotionally unstable personality disorders and I'm inclined to think a little bit like the man that said to me, what am I supposed to do with that? Yeah, there's like a proliferation of new mental health labels that they come up with every time they issue another one of the 
DSMs. And the, and the other thing is, I mean, they're a bit interchangeable. I've worked in an environment where there was two different psychiatrists and you, you saw somebody and then they go and see a psychiatrist and you would pretty well, you could be pretty confident that that one would give them a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder and that one would give them a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Wow. The treatments are totally different. Yeah. And they might not have had either. Yeah, yeah. And also ticking in a box, ticking tick a box and getting things done. And I think this is a cause of clinician burnout as well. We, we would see people, it got worse and worse and worse. And what I'm hearing is it's even worse. You, you would have to assess people if you worked in a community team and you'd have to turn around them quite quickly and come up with a plan, which might be six sessions, there's six. It all had to be ticking in the box. I used to see people in the community team and me and the person I was seeing would think, not quite sure what's wrong here. And I'd say, well, I'm not quite sure what I can do for you. And I'm not quite sure. And I would arrange to see them in a month's time and keep them on the caseload. So that sort of, we're not quite sure. You can't do it in a quick assessment. We've got to let a bit of time pass. We've got to make the services easily available for this person during that time. And then we'll get to the bottom of it. I was told to stop that. You had to, you had to see them. That's it. Discharge them, or take them on the caseload, or pass them to somebody else. You couldn't, you couldn't spend more time trying to work out what was really going on. And that is, that is destroying mental health services. That attitude. Yeah, yeah. It's very constraining in what you can offer and what uh, people can expect. Yes. So as you move forward with your efforts, what's, what's on your table of next things to do? Hmm. I wrote a little list because I was going to remind myself of that. I think I'd like to do more of the clinical education work and I'm involved in an organization called MedLearn, uh, which is about clinical education and about clinical education from the point of view that I said really letting the patient be their best expert. So it's, I'm trying to do more and more on that. And I'll try something. And if it doesn't work, it might be because it wasn't any good or it might be it's not the right time. So more teaching, more clinical education, more involvement with patients in their own care. And less anything that challenges the hierarchy in healthcare. It's, that's, it's, it's going to be challenged anyway. And I just think before I retire, because I'm getting on now, at least, I, at least I've had a good go at that. You're doing something meaningful. Yes, yes. Uh, when you mentioned Sam as a, an equally paid contributor and employee of, of your project, it reminds me that uh, there's a big movement in research and in uh, clinical care to involve patients, patient and family advisors to help uh, develop policy and improve treatment and create efficiencies. And uh, I have uh, come back from a history of HIV advocacy and, and that went through a whole thing of involving patients and then it was meaningful involvement of patients mm -hmm. to get away from that tokenism. And so it was quite 
pleasing to hear that Sam's actually being paid for his lived experience, his wisdom, his knowledge, whereas often we see with these patient and family advisor councils that all of that value is extracted from patients who are oftentimes uh, sick and unable to work full-time or part-time yeah. from them, the people who can least afford the time, energy, funds to be volunteering for that. And I've put forward to these folks, well, if there's all this value that you say you're gaining from the patient and family advisors that's saving you money, how come that's not coming back to help support the patients? I couldn't agree more. And it's still the norm to involve patients at, at a, either a really nominal rate of pay when they're actually adding more value than anybody else or not at all. And very patronizing approaches. Somebody was, I heard of somebody approached the other day to say, oh, well, we'll pay you 75 pounds for half a day, that's pittance. £75 for half a day and or we'll pay for your hotel and for your partner's hotel and that, I, I find that really patronising they're getting the one person they want at about a tenth the rate of everybody else is going to be there is being there and probably doing next to nothing mm -hmm. yep what's so wrong with this picture yeah yeah exactly <laughs> trouble is when you speak out like that you People are a bit, I can see people agreeing with me a lot of times, but they're a bit frightened to publicly agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, your illustration of what happens to whistleblowers is enough to off-put anyone from stepping forward and um, speaking the truth. Yeah, and I wish I could give a more positive spin on it, but I've got to say, I don't want to harm people by giving a false impression. Mm -hmm. Uh, another question, sort of circling back, uh, uh, I had a conversation the other day with some patient safety folks, and they were doing uh, statistics on people that were coming into the emergency room and doing a whole sort of data collection on that. But all the data they were collecting was from the hospital workers. And uh, so they had a certain percentage that had been given a mental health label. So I asked, if they're asking the patients who come in, how many of those come in with a physical complaint who end up being given a mental health label? So it shows up in the stats that all these people are coming in with mental health issues, yet a certain percentage of those folks is just a misdiagnosis or it's a convenient diagnosis when they don't wanna say, I, I don't know what's physically wrong. It must be anxiety or depression. Yeah, that sort of research is really good, and it sometimes gets missed, doesn't it? Not asking the wrong people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's at the very start of trying to access service when they get shuttled into mental health, and in, instead of biomedical. Yes. Yes. And then when they don't come back to follow up, often those mental health workers, psychiatrists, psychologists may think, oh, well, you know, I've helped, I've cured, that was a success and they can check their box. When in fact, that person was receiving inappropriate care. Yeah, and it gets compounded because so many people see so many different clinicians. I mean, over here, you can have, well, we, we when we work with groups of people with multiple long-term conditions, a lot of them have got four or five different clinicians that they see. And they don't speak to each other. 
no. the clinicians, not in a meaningful way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so if the big sort of central problem with the medical system is the culture uh, within the physicians especially, how can we change that? What does it take to shift that ship? I've been thinking about this a lot recently because it's almost unshiftable. I think we've got to bring patients in and anybody can do it in any way. I, I, I know a story of a, a unit that I'm aware of because my partner worked there where it was, I suppose the best words, it was dysfunctional. The staff were not doing the right thing. Patients were getting the right treatments. They were, all sorts of things were going wrong. This, because it was a specialist unit, there were patients on the board. And when they found out that there were things going on there that weren't right, that people weren't getting the right treatment, then it changed. So I suppose patients actually on the board and real patients, not, 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 uh, I went to a department of health thing once years ago and they were saying, well, we're all patients really. <laughs> that doesn't mean anything. You've got to have real people. And, and not necessarily people with board level experience. You can give people that. You can teach people how to do that. Because a lot of times when you have patients on boards, it will be people who've been non-exec directors of other things and that, and they're not, they're not really, and no one patient can represent all other patients. So it's getting patients involved at the hierarchy and getting patients involved in what's going on in a non-peripheral way. It sounds so obvious and self-evident that it should already be that way. It does. <laughs> it does. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll move that way. Uh, Steve, thank you so much for taking the time and energy and sharing, sharing your wisdom and for all of the work you do towards patient safety. I really wish you the best moving forward. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, a big thank you to Steve Turner for speaking truth to power about how healthcare systems are patriarchies that pay mere lip service to patients' desires or needs. I especially like Steve's mental health approach of patient-led care, and that means listening to patients and working with them to find out what works for them. It's the exact opposite of arrogance. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and other podcast platforms. You can also become a podcast patron. Premium patrons of the podcast get access to video versions of the interviews. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a podcast patron. Do you need the support of a counselor for your own experience with medical error or living with a chronic illness or LGBT issues or any of life's challenges? You can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself and be kind to others.